This podcast is a ministry of Crossroads Community Church in Hatfield, Pennsylvania. And now, the message. Well, when I was a kid, I don't know about you, I'm sure this wasn't true of you, but when I was a kid, I was not known for being especially profound. You know, fourth grade especially, it's, it's one of those, you know, kids have beautiful stages and then they have, you know, ugly stages, right? And fourth grade was not a good year for me. Uh, and it showed up in almost everything I did. Uh, well, okay, I just, uh, just, so fourth grade me. Do you want to hear a dirty story? A pig fell in the mud. I told you. I mean, really, that was, that was one of my best, right? Or, uh, or uh, somebody would say something like, man, I just love Kit Kat bars. So fourth grade, you say, well, if you love it so much, why don't you marry it? <laughs> yeah. So um, I like to think that I've matured quite a bit since then. Uh, some argue not. But I, I will admit that Sometimes I feel like I'm all the way back in fourth grade, especially when I'm facing a decision and I don't know what to do. You ever feel like that? Sometimes you're looking, you're trying to figure out what should I do next, and the longer you look at the options, the the more the anxiety builds in your heart, and the more you realize you just feel like a child. Like, I don't know anything. I feel so powerless and vulnerable and helpless. We're facing decisions all the time. What school should I go to? What girl should I go to the dance with? Uh, What job should I take? Or what course of study should I follow? You know, should I stay in this really difficult, uncomfortable situation because God wants me to grow? Or should I leave this difficult situation because God wants me happy? What do we do? And And if we're honest, making decisions is exhausting. Nothing can leave us feeling more drained than wrestling with a a decision and we don't know what to do. Now, if if we're honest, we'd have to admit that sometimes when we're in these situations, we say we want God's will, but we're really not seeking God's will at all. What we're really looking for is a, a guarantee of future success. We say, well, I don't want to make a mistake. But what we mean is, we don't want to make a mistake. We want it to be perfect. We want it to be exactly the way it'll work out best. We want want to take the responsibility of that decision and put it on somebody else. We want to offload the anxiety that comes with trying to make a decision. We, We want to just get rid of it and go back to being happy. And that usually happens, uh, it happens more so the bigger the decision is. The Bible tells a story uh, about King Saul. It's found in 1 Samuel 15 and goes on from there. But if you know anything about the story, King Saul had been anointed king. Israel was supposed to let God be their king. They said, no, we want a real king like all the other nations. And God said, you know, that's a bad decision, but okay, I'm going to give you what you asked for. So they, they anoint Saul. He's a big strapping guy, but the truth is, by 1 Samuel 15, he has rejected God's will for his life. He has rejected all the input. He's rejected all the teaching. He's doing it his way. 
until the Philistine army is camped outside ready to attack. And at that point, suddenly he's interested to know God's will. <laughs> what should I do? But by then, the prophet Samuel's dead and uh, all the others, the, the, the godly people have run for the hills and he doesn't know what to do. The truth is that Saul didn't want God's will. What he wanted was success for his own agenda. He wasn't asking God what to do. He wanted to know, will you make me successful? So in 1 Samuel 28, we find Saul going to a, a, a medium, a, a, a seance, a psychic, right? He's going to ask to bring the prophet Samuel back from the dead. Kind of a cool story, like especially Halloween time, you know? And it's kind of, it's funny because Samuel comes back and basically Samuel says, what do you want? Why are you bugging me? And Samuel says the same thing to Saul that we would. You don't want God's will. You just want a guarantee of a successful agenda for yourself. You know, that's one thing I never quite understood, by the way, just as an aside, the psychic friends network. Like, I, I don't know, something's fishy there. First of all, if they really are your friends, why do you always have to call them? Right? Yeah. And, and if they're psychic, why don't they call you before you call them? Right? I mean, something's not right there. Anyway, so Saul has this little interaction Truth is, if I'm honest, I'm not that much different. Sometimes I say I want God's will, but what I really want is what I really want. And so the point of this series, and especially today's message, is that God wants something different than what you and I want. God wants us to learn to be better Choosers. That's why you don't find a single chapter in the Bible that says how to know God's will for your life. <laughs> you know, first and second hesitations, second calamity, like all those, it's just, they don't, they don't exist. By the way, it's pretty embarrassing when you do that in Bible college and the students don't catch it. But anyway, <laughs> you see, God wants us to learn to be better choosers, better deciders. That's why, even though you've prayed, he didn't drop a note from heaven about what you should do next. Because doing that would undercut the very thing that he's doing in our lives, which is teaching us to be better at choosing and deciding. Instead of asking God, what are we supposed to do? The scriptures say we should be asking God for the tools so that we can make better decisions. We looked at James last week, and I just want to review that. James 1.5, if you have your Bible. In, in James 1.5, we read this. If any of you lacks wisdom, I don't see any hands. <laughs> yeah. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who will tell you exactly what to do next? who gives generously to all without finding fault. Why do you suppose he says that? 
Because if you're like me, I tend to think I'm supposed to know it all already. I would never say that out loud. And yet I act in my heart of hearts like somehow I'm supposed to know everything already. Therefore, if I don't know what to do, I'm a doofus. He says he gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. If you ask for wisdom, you will get it. Of course, the other problem is that even when we get it, we don't like what it says. But that's a different sermon. There's a passage that's parallel to this in Philippians chapter 1. Starting in verse 9, we read this. And this is my prayer, Paul prays, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Do you see the wisdom component? He's praying that their love would abound, but it would abound in knowledge and depth of insight so that you are able to discern what is best. There it is. God wants us to become good choosers. Now, to be honest, uh, sometimes we don't really ask for wisdom until we get to a life-altering decision. The big ones. And, and you know, when you think about it, life-altering decisions are, are kind of like, you know, performing at Carnegie Hall or singing the national anthem in, at the Super Bowl. It's usually a pretty good idea to practice before you get to that spot. The same is true of making better decisions. It's a good idea to practice with little doors before we get to the big doors. If you're taking notes. It's a good idea to practice with the little doors before we get to the big doors. Now, when do we have those opportunities at little doors? Galatians 6 says this, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. You know, as we go through our lives, the truth of the matter is, we have opportunities to, to practice making little decisions all the time. They're everywhere. Throughout your day, there is opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to practice making decisions. The problem is that we end up by kind of putting most of our life on autopilot. And whatever it is that you've done in the past, we just automatically do it. But if we would stop and realize that these choices that we have, first of all, that they're there and that we can choose differently, we can begin to view life and those little decisions as opportunities to practice. And you have them every day. What are you going to say in response to what they just said? What are you going to eat today? How fast are you going to drive to work today? When are you going to take a vacation? Or how will you rest? How will you do your work today? What will you read? Who will you go with? What kind of uh, opportunities will you have to speak to someone else? See. We all are faced with these kind of little opportunities all the time. There's, there's dozens. In fact, from last week, we read that the one researcher, researcher said that there's at least 70 decisions every day. Over 25,000 in a year. 1.7 million in a lifetime. We are the sum of the decisions we make. 
scary thing is that half the time, those decisions are on autopilot. But, you know, we have these opportunities. God sends them. A long time ago, Cindy and I were a young couple, had a hard time. I don't even remember what it was because now the things that I thought were hard back then, now that's laughable, right? <laughs> but we were going through a hard time. And I remember these people sent us a little envelope with a little money. Huh. Wow, that was so neat. Or, or maybe you've had the circumstance where somebody in the drive through lane in front of you, you get up to the, pay, the, the window and you find out that the person in front of you paid for your meal ahead of time. We've been in that spot where you're sitting in a restaurant and you're eating and, and all of a sudden somebody says, oh, by the way, somebody, else, somebody picked up your ticket. What? Now, the funny thing is, when that person decided to do that little, just step through that small door of generosity. It's just a tiny door. But when they decided to step through a door of generosity, I'm sure it impacted them, but what they may not have realized is that it impacted us. And we started thinking, wouldn't it be fun to do? And so there have been times when we have seen somebody in the restaurant or whatever, and we say, hey, Dinner's on us. Or to, or to express generosity in some small way. And whenever we do that, i got to be honest, we, we never look back later after the fact and say, boy, you know, I really regret being generous with that little gift. <laughs> it never happens. It's just the opposite. You see, even the smallest little decisions that we make, like a decision to be generous, can set the tone for the next sets of decisions that we make as well as those that we live near. Experiencing generosity taught us generosity. Now, there is a process to figuring out, to identifying and choosing doors. There is a process. And as we step through the process, I think it's important for us to keep this in mind. You see, we go through doors, and as we go through a door, what we find on the other side is the person that we have become. It's sad that it's, but true that people who have experienced abuse often end up being abusers. Those that have seen addiction can be tempted with addiction. But the opposite is also true. Those who have seen or experienced generosity or grace can begin to model that same behavior. You see, we walk through doors, and when we get on the other side, we find the person that we have become. Now, there is a process to choosing doors. And uh, there's, there's five steps, and, and it's really basically, it's not profound. This is pretty simple. You know, first of all, we simply recognize that there's another option there. I said that usually we go on autopilot. So the first step is to say, wait a minute, I don't have to do what I always do. I don't have to sit at that table for lunch. I don't have to respond to my neighbor and his irritating ways the way I usually do. So the first step is to simply recognize, actually, there's an open door here. I have another option. And then we have to identify 
which options are still the thing you want to be. But there are some options here, figuring out what the options are. And then we have to evaluate those options. Hmm. Well, you know, I mean, yeah. and, and for some of you, that's paralyzing. Because you're, you want to quantify it and come up with a number. 66, that's it. That's the one. Most of the time, we're just choosing the best we can. Well, after we've evaluated, then that's what we do. We make a choice. And after we make a choice, we learn something. And that is as much or more God's purpose in this process as anything else. We tend to think that God's will is for us to we'll take whatever that next step is. His will is more related to the things that we're learning as we're making that choice. You notice that James doesn't say, whoever doesn't have wisdom, let him ask God exactly what he should do. What he says is, ask for the tools to choose wisely. Here's this principle that I want us to remember. Ben already said it. God's primary will for you is not the achievements that you pile up or the circumstances that you inhabit. It's the person that you become. Sound way up. Hey, can you back that up? Because you missed the first sentence, so you don't know what's going on. All of a sudden, there was a tremendous earth-shattering noise. A blast knocked me off my. Just a ten fifty. Ten fifty. Ten fifty. <laughs> this is the first time we've tried to switch, so this is new for, our, for us. Cute little bird. <laughs> oh, there it went. <laughs> they are making decisions. That's right. And they are almost certainly learning something. There you go. Marathon in April 15, 2013, because my daughter was running in the marathon. So I was waiting for her at the finish line, looking forward to seeing her cross, and I knew she was getting close. The crowds were cheering. I just remember it was one of the happiest moments of my life.
Just hit pause and then. maybe a network issue. We, that's why we try, try not to show these things right off of our network. So, well, so let me describe the scenario, at least now that you've seen that, that, that this isn't my story. So Amanda did go to watch her daughter run at the Boston Marathon. And of course, you know what happened at that marathon. As she was standing there watching for her daughter to cross, there was an explosion. It knocked Amanda to the ground. On the ground, she began to hear people moaning and screaming. A, a woman not far from her was screaming in agony. Amanda crawled over to her, held her hand. She could see that the entire inside of her leg was gone. And she held her hand and said, I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to stay here until help comes. She starts yelling out for help. And then there was a second blast. And it wasn't until after the paramedics showed up that you know, they'd carried this woman that's injured so badly that then somebody pointed out to Amanda that actually she'd been injured too. And so they put her on a stretcher, took her to the hospital. Amanda and her daughter were reunited back at the hospital. By God's grace, although both of them had been injured, neither of them had been injured seriously. And even in the hospital, they knew that God had spared them. The question was, why had he spared them? Um, Amanda's daughter looked her right in the eye and she said, Mom, God spared us for something. He protected us. He saved us for something. We should reevaluate how we're living our lives and ask if there's something that God wants us to do. Well, that started kind of a change in Amanda's life. Um, Amanda had grown up in a family of travelers. They traveled around the world when she was a child with her family. And she did the same with her kids. They had traveled around the world. And she began looking around her house. She could see throughout her house these items that she had purchased and brought home to to her own home, beautiful items made by gifted artisans. And how that each of those items had become a sort of touchstone for her and her family, kind of a touchstone to a world that was far outside of her doorstep. Amanda also began to think back to the conversations she's had with some of those artisans and how that many of them said that their way of life was changing, that they they couldn't even make a living doing what they were doing anymore. And since over 70% of those artisans were women, that meant that there were these women living in these big cities now without income, and they were vulnerable and Amanda started to wonder, market access. I wonder, I wonder if I could do something with market access and allow people like me who really appreciate these artisans' works to get in contact with the artisans. And now, now, Amanda had had a 30-year career in marketing, so no surprise there. A couple of weeks, she talked to her boss, and within a few more weeks, she quit her job. And they started this new business called Artisan Connect. And if you were able to see the video, they've got some beautiful images of some of these items. But basically, now Amanda is able to connect consumers around the world with these artisans that make these beautiful things. And not only is she able to do something that helps people provide an income for their families, but it also brings a sense of happiness and dignity to their lives. And Amanda points back She points back to a single moment in time when there was this flash 
It was like God interrupted her comfortable, easygoing life and reminded her. In fact, you, she says it. She goes, I, had, I hadn't done anything wrong. I had just kind of forgotten the stuff that was deep inside me. I'd forgotten that, that I, I wanted to make a difference in people's lives. And she points back to that moment when God reminded her that she could get back in touch, reconnect with those passions and those desires and that drive and that vision that God had put inside her all along. You see, Amanda, um, she saw a problem, and her decision to act helped her reconnect with the stuff that had been deep in her heart all along. It's really easy. It's easy to get comfortable in our lives and to keep plowing along and forget that we once thought we would make an impact. Now, sometimes because God loves us and he doesn't want us to live our lives wide awake but still being totally asleep, sometimes God does something for us. He sends something to wake us up, to jar us out of being so comfortable. There's a name for those things. <laughs> problems. You thought problems were the enemy. But once you get the fact that God is trying to help us be better deciders, you're going to realize that problems are, are a gift it's God's way of getting our attention, reminding us that it's easy to overlook things when we're comfortable. Because he loves us, God sends us problems. The truth of the matter is, in some important ways, your life is going to be defined by your problems. Small-souled people tend to have small problems. It's not that hard. You could commit yourself, you could choose to commit your life to, well, how can I be rich? How can I be healthy? How can I be successful? How can I be secure? You could devote yourself to that level of a problem to solve. See, small soul people have small problems. How can I be safer? How can I be happier? How can I win more often than the people around me? How can I reduce wrinkles? How can I dress to impress? But large soul people have large problems. They wrestle with things like, how can I live in one of the counties that has the highest rate of opioid overdose deaths in the nation and not do anything about it? How can there be so uh, thousands of children in foster care and I do nothing about it? How can there be kids who don't eat enough right here? How can I stop Violence that occurs at home. How can I help couples stay together rather than just divorcing and going their own way? You see, people with large soul 
souls have large problems. And the truth is, I think God would say to us, we need a God-sized problem. You need a God-sized problem. In fact, if you don't have one, today your problem is that you don't have one. Without a God-sized problem, we tend to focus on these tiny little things. Just for a second. Make a quick bulleted list in your mind of the things that have occupied and worried you in the last week. Oh, my. So tiny. Not all of you. Me. Now, it's important for us to understand that just because we see an open door, just because we're ready to step through it, doesn't mean it's going to go well. But you and I need God-sized problems. In fact, uh, in fact, maybe you want to do this. You want to turn to the person next to you, and you need to ask them this important question. What's your problem? <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> What's your problem? What is my problem? See, is, is, the problem, is the problem that you are devoting yourself to all about you? Is the reason that I'm here on earth really just to keep me here on earth? Why am I still here? That's a great question. Why am I still here? What am I supposed to do? Now, those of us who know Jesus as our Savior, we learn that what we ought to be saying is, Lord, what problem in your world do you want me to address? What problem in your world do you want me to address? Why am I still here? Now, if you're not sure about which doors to go through. If you're not sure about making those decisions, then I'm going to make a suggestion. And that is that you form a door-choosing committee for yourself. A door-choosing committee. I want you to consider finding two, three, four, five people in your lives, in your life. People that are... They have a good track record. They have a good character, and they have a good track record of making some good decisions. They ought to be people who are your friend, people who love you. They care about the advice they're going to give you. And when you make this little group, then you go to them and you say, hey, I would like you to speak into my life about something. I have this choice, and I'd like to get your input on, about, on which, which options sound the best to you. I'm thinking about doing something. I'd like to hear what you think of it. <laughs> Do you know how many train wreck decisions we would avoid? I mean, and we've all made train wreck decisions. We have all made train wreck decisions. But do you realize how many of them would be avoided if we would just stop and ask somebody near us who's smart and loves us, what do you think? And, of course, then you have to listen to them. And see, here's the problem. When we are wrestling with a decision all by ourselves, 
we kind of tend to get narrow-focused. We tend to start seeing things black and white, A or B, very binary. We don't realize that there's a broader range of options out there. This, this focus narrowing happens to all of us if we stay in our own heads. So we end up by saying, I don't know, should I buy that or not? When the truth is, maybe we should be asking ourselves, what would be the best way I could spend this money that I have to spend? Or you're thinking, should I break up with him or should I stay with him? When really, maybe a better question would be, is there something that I can do that would contribute to this relationship getting better for both of us? You see, it's easy for us to think that the, the choices are between door A, door one, and door two. Sometimes the choices are between door one, door two, door three, door four, door five. We just don't see all those options unless we get a little bit of help from someone else. But as we do this, I think it's important to remember that discerning an open door is not the same as having an assurance of future success. The Bible is full of stories of people who took an open door from God and weren't necessarily happier. I mean, they called Jeremiah the weeping prophet. Okay? John the Baptist lost his head, literally lost his head. In Acts 16, it's kind of an interesting story. Paul has a vision. Here, we're going to read it, starting in verse 9. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. And after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. God opened, literally opened the door to Macedonia for the gospel. And he goes on in verse 12, he says, And from there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and a leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. So Paul and Silas were there ministering. And as they ministered, they got into arguments with those who opposed him. And uh, remember now, God sent them there, verse 23. And after they had been severely flogged, what? Seriously, God, I asked you what I should do. You sent me here to get whipped? After they had been flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them on, in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Not everybody in the prison was chained to the wall. These guys were. Verse 25, And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Yeah. It sounds pretty spiritual, although it was kind of hard to sleep in that place with your chain, feet chained to the wall. But hey, midnight they were up singing and praying, praising God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. All at once the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. It makes perfect sense that, that an earthquake might jar a few doors open. But you know it's a miracle when chains fall off open. That was not earthquake. That was God. And all at once the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. And the jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and he was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. 
And the jailer called for lights, and he rushed in, and he fell, trembling before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out, and he asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? It's pretty interesting. God opens a door. Paul goes through it. He gets beaten and thrown in prison. While he's in prison, God opens a door, and Paul doesn't go through it. The door's wide open. He doesn't go through. You know why? Because Paul had a laser-focused understanding of what God had told him to do in the first place. Paul had been sent by God to open spiritual doors for other people. And Paul knew it would be hard to do that as an escapee. It would be easier to do it as a prisoner. And so Paul was willing to stay in chains so that he could fulfill the mission that God had given him to fulfill, to open spiritual doors for other people. There's this interesting theme of wisdom in the scriptures. In the ancient world, ancient people of all cultures really loved wisdom. They would sing songs about wisdom, and they would tell poems and stories about wisdom. In fact, they loved it so much that they would, in their writing, they would personify wisdom as a person. And they talked to it like it was a person. We read that in Proverbs 8. Now, this is, this is from the message, just because I, I love how, how colloquial it sounds. Proverbs 8, verses 1 through 11, we read this. Do you, this, is, this, is, this is wisdom literature now. Do you hear Lady Wisdom calling? Can you hear Madam Insight raising her voice? See what I mean? They kind of personify it. She's taken her stand at first and main, at the busiest intersection, right in the city square where the traffic is thickest. And she shouts, you, I'm talking to all of you, everyone out there on the streets. Listen, you idiots. Learn good sense. Hey, blockheads, shape up. Don't miss a word of this. I'm telling you how to live well. I'm telling you how to live at your best. Prefer my life disciplines over chasing after money. And prefer God knowledge over a lucrative career. For wisdom is better than all the trappings of wealth. Nothing you could wish for holds a candle to her. I am Lady Wisdom, and I live next to sanity. Knowledge and discretion live just down the street. Good counsel and common sense are my characteristics. I am both insight and the virtue to live it out. I love those who love me. Those who look for me, find me. You see, that kind of a love for wisdom was the background for the ministry of Jesus. And as Jesus arrived on the scene, they already loved wisdom, but, but the writer's of the Gospels started to realize right away that something had changed, that the whole game, the wisdom game, had come up a notch. In the book of Mark, we read, and, well, all the Gospels talk about the fact that as Jesus would teach, people would marvel, say, whoa, where, where did he get this wisdom and this authority? They all recognized that whatever they thought was wisdom, Jesus took it up a notch. They knew that wisdom personified had now become wisdom a person. Paul actually took it a step from there. 
In Colossians 2, he wrote this, starting in the second half of verse 2. In order that you may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Paul got to the point where he could describe Jesus as this treasury, treasury of wisdom and knowledge, this this walking, talking expression of wisdom. This is way more than what was described in the Old Testament. One day, wisdom actually came in the flesh and walked among them. Actually, that, that's what John is talking about. If you know anything about the, first, the opening of the book of John, this is wisdom literature too, by the way. John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Through Him all things were made. Verse 4, In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Verse 5, That light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In verse 14, he says, And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. See, Paul understood that Jesus represented something more than Old Testament wisdom, something more than simply a personification of wisdom, maybe even more than wisdom in person. He represented the entire treasure of everything God knows. And he was right there. Now, the people in Israel knew what their problem was. We talked about how important it is to identify a problem. They knew what their problem was. Their problem was Rome. And they even could identify the options. Uh, Door one, we could resist and rebel in hatred. Door number two, we could sort of uh, withdraw and hide and just try to stay out of the way in contempt. Or door number three, we could collaborate with them and sort of benefit in self-interest and become just like them. Those were the options. And there were people that chose each of those ways through history. But then Jesus comes. And Jesus sees an option that no one else has seen. Jesus, who is wisdom in the flesh, saw another option. The way of sacrificial love and resurrection power. By choosing to embody this, by being willing to give himself as a sacrifice, Jesus opened the way to God for Israel and for Rome and for all of us. That's why Jesus said in John 10, he says, I am the gate. I'm the door. Whoever enters through me shall be saved and shall go in and out and shall find pasture. Here's the most profound thing. The ultimate door is a person. The very best choice a person can make is a person. So Jesus says, take up your cross. Die to yourself and you will live. Jesus sees options that we would never dream of. So wisdom loved. Wisdom suffered on a cross. Wisdom died. Wisdom rose from the grave. 
Wisdom, thank God, is more than just common sense or practical advice or insight into how to navigate life smoothly and safely. Aren't you glad? Wisdom is more than those things. Wisdom is alive today. And wisdom will walk through whatever doors open with you. He is ready to walk alongside you. And one day, wisdom will come again. The scriptures say that Jesus will have a bride then. That bride is called the church. So if you love wisdom so much, why don't you marry it? Someday we will. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. Intro music by bensound.com. Visit us online at crossroads-cc.org.